Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. Each week since the outbreak of the pandemic, I've hosted a conference call to discuss aspects of COVID-19. Each speaker only gets six minutes. After everyone has had a chance to speak, there's a question and answer period. I end the program with a one-minute note of optimism from each speaker. This Sunday's program is focused on education. My co-host for What Happens Next is Rick Banks, who is a Stanford Law professor. Rick will speak about equality in education. Jay Green is a special co-host for this episode on education. Jay is a professor of educational policy at the University of Arkansas, but he is best known as my debate partner at Nutra High School. Our first guest speaker is Mira Levinson, who is a professor of education at Harvard. Mira will be answering the question, what does it mean for teachers to be essential workers? You will recall meeting Mira's dad, Sandy, two weeks ago on this program when he spoke about the monument controversy. Our second guest speaker is Rita Kogensen, who is an assistant professor of politics at the University of Virginia. Rita will be discussing the inconsistent government decisions related to school openings. Then, Naomi Schaefer-Riley from the think tank AEI will speak about child abuse and foster care during the pandemic. Joel Rose is next. He is the CEO of New Classrooms and will discuss personalized learning. Keith Westman is COO of UTIS, who will explain how to use testing data to improve educational outcomes. Our final speaker is Moira McDermott. Moira is an associate teaching professor of mathematics at Syracuse University. Moira's topic is the challenges for teaching freshman calculus this semester. I first met Moira in seventh grade and was amazed that she was a better student than I was in all of my classes. In a little-known trivia fact, Moira and I were both selected by our junior high student body to be the most likely to succeed in our eighth grade graduating class. You'll be pleased to know that Moira was also a member of the Nutria debate team with Jay Green and me. Okay, that is our agenda for today. Two weeks ago, I sent out a survey to our audience asking questions about education. Here are the highlights. In this audience, by a two-to-one ratio, parents want the public schools to be open for business because online isn't cutting it, they want more socialization for students, and parents get back to work, despite the risk of a COVID spread. 92% of our survey participants thought if a public school district decides to go only online, that a nearby private or charter school should be allowed to make a different decision. On the issue of foster care, which is one of Naomi Schaefer-Rowley's topics, our audience preferred family reunification over a rapid resolution and permanent adoption for children by a two-to-one margin. My next survey question related to the role of the state in determining the curriculum for private schools. Here's what I found surprising. Less than 20% of you thought private schools need to be taught in English. Two-thirds of you thought that the state should require some minimum number of hours in the key subjects, but only about 10% thought that the state should mandate the curriculum in private schools or limit the amount of time for religious education. I want to make a quick plug for next week's program that will focus on cancel culture and speech on campus. Alan Kors and Marianne Franks will be our highlighted speakers. Patrick Allett will return to the program to discuss teaching with Zoom. In two weeks, one of our topics will be literature and times of pandemic. We will discuss Catherine Ann Porter's short novella, Pale Horse, Pale Rider. It is a 1918 flu short story classic that is less than 100 pages long, so please start reading it. Every month since the beginning of What Happens Next, I've reviewed the monthly employment statistics. There are two survey methods to gauge changes in U.S. employment. There is an establishment survey that estimates changes using labor data from America's largest employers and the household survey, which is based on phone calls to 60,000 homes. 
They are very different methods, but the results over the long run are very similar. In a normal economic situation, the United States generally increases employment by about 200,000 jobs per month. In August, the establishment survey showed an increase of 1.3 million jobs and 8 million for the quarter. Now, the U.S. is still down 10 million jobs year on year, but we are now 60% back from the lowest employment levels in April. The household survey showed an increase of employment by 3.7 million jobs in August, or 2.4 million more than the establishment survey. This is quite extraordinary. So the question is, why would there be such a large difference between survey methods? My own view is that the establishment may be a lagging indicator, as the household survey includes smaller firms. In addition, callers in the survey may be responding more quickly as companies begin recalling employees back to work. If you look at the breakdown by industry, you will see that industry-specific problems are now much more apparent. Where in April nearly every industry was decimated, now the troubles are contained to just a few obvious problems. Job loss is greater in movie theaters, transportation, and leisure and hospitality. In fact, hospitality employment is down by 4 million jobs, or 40% of the entire job loss for the economy. Workers without a college degree have seen double the increase in unemployment relative to college-educated workers, likely because more educated workers can more easily work from home. In August, 24% of all employed persons teleworked because of COVID, down from just 26% in July. I expect the current unemployment will take time to resolve itself because of the closing of thousands of businesses. It will not be easy for displaced workers to find jobs with new employers. This call is being recorded. Now let's turn it over to my co-host, Rick Banks. Rick, go ahead. Rick, you might be on mute. Thank, thank you so much, Larry. I was just saying I'm, I'm feeling bad now about not being a part of the new Trier debate team. That must have been some squad. Um, anyway, my uh, son is an intern uh, on what happens next. And as we discussed this upcoming call, he reminded me that the root word of school traced back to ancient Greek comes from the word for leisure. That seemed fitting to me as uh, societies have almost always given the most advantaged people the most access to schooling. Uh, those literally were the people who had the leisure to undertake schooling uh, for most of human history. That is certainly the case in our society, too. What's most striking now is not how, simply how much we spend on money in the aggregate. It's that our schools work so well for some and so poorly for others. Our nation has some of the best schools in the world, and this is true at all levels of education, uh, from universities that attract people from all over the world on down through high schools and even elementary schools. Yet it is also true that these extraordinary schools tend to serve the students who in fact need them the least. The most affluent families and the best students are provided with the best schools, while the students most in need of education are often shunted off to the worst schools. We should see this as a problem. We should ask ourselves, is it any more justifiable, frankly, than if we reserve the best medical care for the people who are already in the best health? I have suggested that the provision of the best schooling to the already advantaged sectors of our population is longstanding. But what's new now and what makes this call especially timely is that education is also more important now than at any point in our lifetimes. In the words of economists, we would say that the combination of technology and globalization have increased the economic returns to education. 
the gap in earnings uh, and life uh, well-being between college graduates and high school graduates is greater now than in generations past. Too often in our society, uh, the promise of education is used to, frankly, help the rich get richer, while those who fall behind educationally, who are often disadvantaged, fall behind in other ways as well. This dynamic implicates issues of income inequality and racial inequality, to be sure, and it also raises questions about the future prosperity of our nation. We need to think more about how best to use the great promise of education to better serve those in our society who have the least. Our well-being as a nation depends in part on our ability to create systems of schooling that work well for all of America's people. Back to you, Larry. Okay, thank you, Rick. Okay, our next speaker is Jay Green. Jay Green is a distinguished professor of education policy at the University of Arkansas. Go ahead, Jay. Thanks, Rick, and thanks, Larry. Um, and I, I do have to agree with Rick that it was awesome being on the Nutra uh, debate team uh, with Larry and Moira. Uh, and, and Moira was a champion. Larry and I, not so much, because we were too busy having fun making bad arguments, and perhaps not much has changed. Um, so to, to today's topic, um, one of the curses of studying education policy is that almost everyone imagines that they are an expert on the subject. We all went to school, which constituted a large part of our childhood. Most of us sent children to school. These direct experiences give us a lot of knowledge about education, but unfortunately, we tend only to know a lot about the part of the elephant we can touch. Before we dive further into our discussion of issues facing education and childbearing during the pandemic, I'd like to give you some facts that might help you grasp the magnitude of the education elephant in its entirety. Total education spending for elementary, secondary, and higher education in the United States was $1.453 trillion as of 2018-19, of which $765 billion was for public K-12 education and $620 billion was for higher education. Education spending amounts to about 7.5% of GDP. To put that amount further in perspective, total U.S. defense spending in 2019 was $732 billion about half as much as was spent on all education, and also less than what was spent on public K-12 education. Everyone has probably seen the bumper sticker that says, it will be a great day when our schools get all the money they need and the Air Force has to hold a bake sale to buy a bomber. But a more accurate bumper sticker would be about how we might need a bake sale to buy bombers instead of build schools. About 6.5 million people currently work in public schools, of whom about 3.2 million are teachers. To put that in perspective, the total number of people employed in the U.S. is currently about 144 million, of whom about 50 million have a bachelor's degree. That means that roughly one out of every 10 employed person with a bachelor's degree currently works in a public school as a teacher, administrator, librarian, or in some other, public, uh, or in some other support position. At a typical Thanksgiving dinner table among people with college degrees, more than one person will be a current or former public school employee. The interesting concerns of public school employees are fresh on the mind of the upper middle class in this country. The students in public schools, on the other hand, disproportionately come from lower income families, from parents with lower levels of education, and are people of color. Of the 51 million students currently enrolled in public schools, about 15% are black and 28% are Hispanic, while the national population is about 13% black and 19% Hispanic. 
The interesting concerns of the average child attending public schools are much less well understood by the college-educated people gathered for Thanksgiving than are the interesting concerns of the people who work in those schools. We are relatively insensitive to the high cost of education because much of that money is paid to our friends and family who gather at the Thanksgiving table. And whether schools are open for full face-to-face -face instruction or not, our friends and family will continue to get paid. On the other hand, the needs of the average parent may be less salient to us. If schools cannot provide custodial care, they will find it harder to go to work and they are less well positioned to compensate for the low quality of online instruction. Of course, the health concerns of our friend and friends and families working in schools are completely legitimate. But those concerns have to be balanced against the needs of the family schools serve. The point is that the people listening to this call probably know a lot more about what teachers think about how to balance risks and needs in schools during this pandemic than they know about what the average parent thinks. To help broaden our understanding of these issues, of these issues we have invited a number of experts who may be able to speak with greater authority on the interests and concerns of the families served by the government-operated schools. Those interests and concerns may sound a little different than what you hear from the current and former public school employees gathered around your Thanksgiving table, but we hope you, that this discussion gives you more of a complete picture of the education elephant. Thank you, Larry. Thanks, Jay. We'll come back to you about that in our question and answer period. Um, our first guest speaker is Mira Levinson. Mira is a professor of education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And she asked her topic be, what does it mean for teachers to be essential workers? Mira, go ahead. Great. Thanks, Larry. Um, and I so appreciate being invited to this. Uh, so um, some of you may have read the assigned pre-reading, which is a New England Journal of Medicine article that I co-authored uh, with actually my husband, Mark Lepsich, who's an epidemiologist, uh, and Muga Chevek, who's a physician epidemiologist uh, in Scotland, about uh, reopening elementary schools in the pandemic. And in that paper, which came out in July, uh, we declared that educators should be seen as essential workers um, because their work is essential, right? Um, so like one of the major definitions for the U.S. government of what an essential worker is comes from the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. I'm actually not sure what the history is behind this, but um, CISA is the one who defines and puts out memos about this. And they say that promoting the ability of critical workers to continue the work during periods of community restriction, access management, social distancing, or closure orders is crucial to community resilience and the continuity of essential functions, unquote. So I think clearly uh, K-12 schools um, and to a lesser uh, uh, level universities are really crucial for community resilience and for continuity of essential functions, um, academic and social learning, child care, feeding, medical care for many kids, um, access to other social services, um, therapeutic services for special needs, et cetera. Um, interestingly, though, when we declared uh, educators to be essential workers in July, or we suggested that they should be, we had no declaratory power, um, no educators were actually deemed to be essential workers by any state or local or uh, our federal government. Um, however, just recently, on August 18th, uh, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency um, issued its fourth advisory memo since March about who should be considered an essential worker. And for the first time, teachers and other K-12 and university uh, personnel were included in this list. 
Um, and it's quite possible that that is uh, an extension, I mean, there are various reasons, right? Uh, Childcare workers were actually always on the list, and to the extent that uh, people are now uh, recognizing the childcare function of schools, it may be that that justifies the expansion. It's possible that it was President Trump's uh, declaration that he wanted schools to be open, and this is one way to do that, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, and or it may, uh, one of the reasons that CISA said that they hadn't included educators on the list before that was because the schools were closed and they just took it as a given that the schools were closed and so then they didn't declare teachers as essential workers. Whereas by late August, it was no longer a given that schools would remain closed. That was one of the questions about what would happen. Um, most states and districts still have not actually declared K-12 or university educators to be essential workers, but a few places have. Florida has, various districts in Tennessee have, um, Georgia is considering doing so. And so there's this question, I think, which is what does it mean for educators and what should it mean for them to be declared essential workers? One of the things I find super fascinating is that there's an amazing amount of ambiguity about what it means for anyone to be an essential worker. So in some cases, to be an essential worker means that you can work or you can remain open. So for example, when the World Wrestling Federation in Florida was declared an essential workplace, it meant that they could continue, but it didn't mean that they were required to, right? Or Joanne's Fabrics became really famous for declaring that they were an essential work site and so therefore having their workers come in, but nobody would have um, stomped and screamed if Joanne's Fabrics had closed, even if they had decided they were essential. Right? In other cases, it means that you must remain open or you must work. Right? So here, think electrical grid maintenance workers, meatpacking plants right, were really um, a public example of this, right? So rather than choosing to close or refusing to come into work on safety grounds, you are now required to come in, right? Then there's a similar distinction um, between sort of the most restrictive uh, interpretation of what it means to be an essential worker that you're forced to and the most sort of opportunity expansive you can between um, sort of uh, how we understand extra precautions. So if you're an essential worker, it can be that it means that you're eligible for or even deserving of extra protections or priority in receiving scarce resources like PPE or testing or an eventual vaccine. So for example, healthcare workers are appropriately thought to be potentially first in line to receive scarce vaccines uh, when they become available. On the other hand, it might be that you're forbidden to take extra precautions such as staying home from work and self-quarantining if exposed to a known COVID case at work but asymptomatic. For teachers, what's interesting is that being declared essential has basically meant that they are now subject to the most restrictive approaches rather than being eligible for expansions of opportunities. So they must come to work in person and they are forbidden from taking extra precautions. In some cases, say they're being forbidden from doing things like wearing a mask because it's thought to be too scary for young students or forbidden from building plexiglass dividers around. On the other hand, families are being given a choice in almost every case where teachers are being told that they must be in person to fulfill their uh, duties. So there's this two-way tension. If kids can be educated remotely, why do teachers have to be in school to fulfill their essential jobs? And if it's sufficiently dangerous that parents have the option to keep their kids at home but still access a full range of district services, which is not the case 
normally say when you say you're going to homeschool your kid or send them to a private school, then why don't teachers have the same option to stay home? So I think understandably, many educators are viewing this to be the worst of all worlds. And I'll finish by saying, like, when we declare that teachers should be viewed as essential workers in the New England Journal paper, we had something different in mind. Rather than the most restrictive, we had the most expansive approach. It meant that we should offer educators additional work, uh, resources to do their work well, and that as a community, we needed to sacrifice to make it safe for them to do their job safely. So for example, we should close um, restaurants and bars so that teachers and students could safely return to school. So that, I think, is the tension that we right now are living with in thinking about teachers as essential workers. Great. Okay. Um, our next speaker is Rita Koganson. She is an assistant professor uh, at the Woodrow Wilson Department of Politics at the University of Virginia. Uh, Rita is going to talk about inconsistent government decisions about school openings and how its schools aren't working. Go ahead. Rita, make sure your uh, mute button is off. Back on. Uh, I just want to say I went to a rival high school in the Trier's Niles West, which was clobbered on a weekly basis in every single sport and activity by New Trier. So I guess I respect Jay and Larry and all of their skills, but I resent you all. Um, <clears throat> but this was much later. So I want to start with a story from the beginning of the pandemic, and maybe you'll remember this. Last March, just as coronavirus was shutting down schools across the country, the Harvard Alumni Magazine profiled a Harvard Law professor, Elizabeth Bartolet, who had just published an article arguing for a, quote, presumptive ban on homeschooling on the grounds that most of the families doing it could not properly educate their children. The profile soon went viral as readers were astounded that this Harvard professor would be exhorting them to ban homeschooling at just the moment when it was becoming essentially the only educational option in the country. And the poor timing of the profile was not Bartolet's fault, but it does reflect a larger tension in our national debates over education. We have this nagging question, who should have the authority to determine how and by whom a child is educated? It's a long-standing debate, and for the past several decades, it's been waged largely between proponents of primary or exclusive government control and proponents of parental choice and a plurality of educational options. Usually, Bartolet's side of the debate, the one that favors public schools, can make a fairly persuasive case for itself there are sometimes good reasons to be suspicious of the choices parents make, and governments can do much good in education. But the pandemic has revealed some serious weaknesses in the public schools. It has revealed them to be extremely rigid and inflexible, and maybe even more concerned in some cases with undermining competitors than with adapting to student needs. So last March, government experts and professional educators, the public health officials, school districts, teachers unions, demanded that parents make sacrifices in their kids' education for their and for everyone else's health and safety. No in-person schooling, no sports or social activities, no access even to childcare for much of the spring, and generally poor quality virtual instruction that was inaccessible uh, and ineffective for many students. These costs would be worth bearing if they were to stop gaps to give governments and schools a chance to adjust, which we should grant that they mostly were in the spring. But this fall has been a different story. With the entire summer to prepare, the professionals have by and large produced incoherent and contradictory directives that taken together do very little to advance children's best interests. First, in July, teachers unions in a number of cities issued statements declining to return to in-person teaching until their districts could ensure safe conditions. These conditions included genuine safety requests like COVID testing and social distancing, 
And they also included requests for massive federal bailouts, mortgage and rent cancellation, universal health care, defunding the police, and a moratorium on charter schools. What a reasonable person could ask, does anything on the second list really have to do with safety during a pandemic? The ban on charters is especially interesting because it specifically aims to eliminate a competing educational option that in many cases had been more effective during the pandemic than the district schools. Then in August, inside the very same schools that teachers had deemed too dangerous to enter, private providers began offering tuition-based childcare and virtual learning supervision. Now, instead of sending your children to their own public schools to learn from teachers for free, you could send them to there to be babysat and not learn from a non-teacher and for a hefty sum. Some private schools, though, were still determined to make the necessary modifications for in-person teaching. But even some of these had to face obstructions from local governments. So in a case that was profiled in the New York Times uh, in Montgomery County, Maryland, the county health commissioner prohibited private schools from holding in-person classes, even if they could meet the CDC's safety requirements. And only after the governor and many parents protested the move, the county backed down. In Sacramento County, California, this was a less known case, a private school was ordered to close after violating California's public health guidance by actually teaching students. The rules prohibited schools from opening, but made an exception for childcare facilities so long as they provided no academic instruction. The private school had reopened as a childcare facility, but still attempted to teach, especially the older students. After several weeks of negotiation, it was permitted to reopen again, but again, only so long as the teachers didn't teach. And these were the options that parents were left with this fall. Virtual learning at home, including for kids as young as three and four. Virtual learning overseen by a babysitter in a location that is either a coronavirus death trap or perfectly safe, depending on whether there is a teacher present. Uh, or unenrolling their kids and finding some other alternative altogether. Private school if they could afford it and find a seat. Pandemic pods uh, if they could afford that and find other people to pod up with or just straightforward homeschooling. And despite these onerous and costly alternatives, a study at the end of August found that nearly 40% of parents had unenrolled their children, uh, the majority of those from public schools, though some of them sent them to other public schools that were open. It's hard to see from all of this how the public school's response to the pandemic has been anything but a complete debacle. Now, to be fair, no single actor is to blame for this. The unions may have been inflexible, but they weren't the ones who licensed the for-profit childcare operations in the school building. And local public health authorities in some places were overzealous, but it was mostly school districts that opted for the all-virtual semester. Nonetheless, through some combination of incompetence and lack of coordination, resource shortages, and maybe outright venality, the public education system as a whole has offered families practically nothing in the face of the pandemic. All it seems to have positively done this summer is to try to prevent other educational options, private schools and charters especially, from stepping in to fill the gap. One of the ramifications of this year's education policies may be then to tip the scales a little bit in the debate over who should have authority over children. Looking back at Professor Bartola's proposed presumptive ban on homeschooling now, doesn't it seem a little bit ridiculous to ask parents to entrust all education in this country to the same authorities that have so dramatically failed them this year? Thank you, Rita. Uh, that is depressing. Um, our next speaker will be Naomi Schaefer-Riley. Uh, Naomi is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and where she focuses on issues regarding child welfare. Naomi, please go ahead. Can you hear me? Sorry. Um, okay. Um, so uh, I just wanted to uh, start by giving people a sense that um, 
the, the child welfare system is, is broken in many ways and the pandemic has made it significantly worse. So the first problem that we see in the child welfare system is essentially a problem of information. About three million children are the subject of maltreatment investigations every year in this country. Uh, about 700,000 of those are substantiated. And about a third of the calls that are unsubstantiated will actually be re-reported by someone else. In other words, someone else will say there's something going wrong with this child. And many of those will then be substantiated on the second try. Um, since the pandemic and the lockdown have happened, many of you may have read these headlines, approximately, there's been approximately a 50% decrease in reports of abuse and neglect across the country, everywhere from New York City to rural Ohio. Um, and this, the answer of why this is is, is obvious. About 20% of reports of abuse and neglect come from teachers. Um, they obviously haven't been seeing students. Uh, other reports come from other mandated reporters, uh, like pediatricians, for instance, and a recent report suggested that 80% of children had actually missed regularly scheduled checkups uh, during the lockdown. So now we see why the reports aren't coming in, um, but I should say that the problem is not only a problem of information, I mean, which is to say there is a situation in, in which uh, more often now we're not seeing what's going on behind closed doors. Uh, but there's also uh, the problem in the child welfare system of what we do know. Um, so there are about 2,500 child fatalities uh, usually uh, due to abuse or neglect by a parent or caregiver in the U.S. annually. And about half of those are cases actually where child welfare agencies were aware of problems beforehand. Uh, since the pandemic, we know that investigations into actual reports are actually not being done. Um, my phone calls with different people located at child welfare agencies uh, have, I have learned that a lot of uh, child welfare workers and investigators are not actually doing the investigations that they're supposed to. They've been reluctant to go into homes and see what's going on there, which is necessary really in order to understand whether a child is in danger. Um, and actually, we know that uh, cases of serious abuse and neglect are showing up at hospitals more frequently. Um, and, uh, and when they show up, they're obviously in many cases more severe because we haven't caught them early enough. Um, there are also obviously great stresses on families that have happened during the pandemic. Uh, one obvious one that has come up already um, is the um, resorting to substance abuse, especially for families that already had addiction problems. The stress of the pandemic and the lockdown have certainly made those worse. Uh, also, a, uh, I don't know how many of you saw a front page story in the New York Times uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, unions there actually pressured the governor to lift requirements for in-person investigations into child welfare cases for three months. Um, and the Times actually found one child who had died as a direct result of this. If the mother had not posted to Facebook that her infant had died, uh, we would not have known. But that mother, because uh, she was born, uh, because the child was born substance exposed, um, and the mother had previously had children removed from her custody, uh, she automatically should have been visited by child welfare investigators, and she was not, unfortunately. Um, so the third problem that's uh, kind of gotten worse as a result of the pandemic uh, is just the overwhelming nature of the system. Um, there are not just too many caseworkers, too many cases for every caseworker, but many caseworkers were not uh, very well qualified to begin with and not very well trained to begin with. 
Uh, and they also don't see themselves uh, as essential workers, or as I like to say, they don't see themselves as first responders. Uh, so this creates problems when you say we're in an emergency situation and they say, well, this is not really, a, my, my job is not to risk my own health or my own life in order to find out what's going on in these homes. Uh, you also had family courts that were already overloaded. Uh, in California dependency court, for instance, judges typically handle between 500 and 1,000 cases a year. In Los Angeles County, the average is 1,200 cases a year. The pandemic there has made things worse. Uh, for several weeks, uh, many cases in family court were not being seen at all. Some were being seen virtually, but uh, many judges and lawyers reported that it was hard during these times to see what was really going on with these children. We know that these delays are causing serious problems, not only because kids continue to suffer without our knowledge, uh, and while we delay investigations, um, uh, but also because kids' sense of time is different from adults' sense of time. That is, you know, adults may think you can put off a hearing for a few months, but for kids, um, you know, that could be, you know, a quarter of their lives. Um, unfortunately, I think the response from advocates to this situation has actually the potential to make things even worse. Um, there is a move now, a congressman from Wisconsin has just introduced a bill in Congress that would give parents more time to reunify with their children if their children are in the foster care system uh, because the parents have not had necessarily access to services like drug rehabilitation, anger management, and parenting classes. Uh, and there's actually been guidance from the Children's Bureau also to relax these rules. Currently, if a child has been in foster care for 15 out of 22 months, uh, the state is supposed to move to terminate parental rights. Um, I think that there's lots of reason to sympathize with these parents because they're maybe not getting access to these services, um, but these rules are already routinely flouted, and the longer we leave kids uh, in abusive and neglectful situations, which is what's happening during the pandemic, uh, the worse off they will be, and I think they are the real victims here. Naomi, thank you. Um, and now something for something completely different. Um, we're going to hear from Joel Rose who is founder and CEO of New Classrooms, a new school that focuses on personalized learning. Joel, please go ahead. Great, thank you. So the way that we teach math to kids across the country today is actually one of the nation's greatest barriers to achieving true racial equality. So before COVID, only 13% of black students and 27% of Hispanic students graduated high school ready for college-level math. And if you were low-income, black or brown, and had a parent who did not go to college, your chances of graduating high school ready for college was 9%. That means that for the vast majority of black and brown students who grow up in our country, who make up 30% of our national population, STEM jobs, which are some of the highest paying and fastest growing sectors in our society, and many other jobs, are effectively cut off. So why is math education effectively serving as this invisible social sorting machine? Well, there are a number of theories that have really dominated the last 25 years, including the absence of school choice, the fact that the standards might be too low, something about the teachers not being good enough, but we actually think that there's a bigger reason that hasn't been talked about very much, but is really staring us all right in the face. It's that math education relies on a fixed progression of skills. You learn fifth grade material in fifth grade and sixth grade material in sixth grade and so on and so forth. And when a student for whatever reason falls off that path, there's just no real way to get back on track. 
So once a student gets past basic numeracy, there are roughly 300 mathematical skills and concepts they need in order to graduate ready for college, 300. Now, if a student knows none of them when they begin the fifth grade, which is very rare, that if they just start to learn them, they could learn just about one a week and get through all 300 before they graduate. And one a week is a very slow pace. So why is it that so few kids seem to be able to hit this mark? Well, it's because they're all starting at a different place. The average fifth grade classroom where I once taught has seven different incoming grade spans represented. And yet the fifth grade teacher has to teach the fifth grade skills, whether students are on a third grade level or on an eighth grade level. Math is cumulative. So for those who come in on a third grade level, which is about a third of all students, teaching them fifth grade skills can actually cause them to fall behind further. And if they can't add, they're going to struggle to multiply. And then that just keeps getting worse as they go to sixth grade and seventh grade and eighth grade when multiplication is required for so many other aspects of math. Precious instructional time is just getting wasted, teaching kids skills they don't have the foundation to master, and they fall further and further behind in the process. So here's what's next. If we are serious about moving to an educational system that doesn't serve to screen kids out, we need to flip our way of thinking on its head. So today, individual students are just expected to meet the school's expectations. Some do and some don't for a variety of reasons. But what's needed is for schools to actually be expected to meet the unique needs of each student to give each one the right set of skills that they need based on where they're starting from and where they ultimately need to get to. That's what we're focused on doing. Our organization has built a totally different way to teach kids math called Teach to One that uses a combination of teachers and technology so that every day students are getting the right skills to work on and in a way that works best for them. And as part of that, we use advanced technology and machine learning techniques based on daily quizzes to figure out what each student should work on the very next day and what approach is likely to work best. This is the moment for this kind of transition to happen. For one thing, learning loss is now far more prevalent and top of mind, given that so many schools closed last spring and many kids lost out on months of learning. And second, schools are far more adept at using technology than they ever were pre-COVID. But this is not a sector that changes quickly. Uh, we have all been operating under the same standardized age-based grade level system for more than 100 years. And this form of standardization just doesn't enable equity. It actually locks in the status quo. If we're ever going to flip this paradigm so that every student can get what they need when they need it, we're going to need to fix three things. The first is we're going to need R&D capital. R&D is what's driving progress in every other sector except for K-12 education. Why is that? Well, venture capitalists generally stay clear of K-12, given that there are 15,000 fragmented and often bureaucratic school districts. And while the federal government does invest in R&D in sectors such as defense and healthcare and clean energy, it invests a bit in the R part of R&D, but very little in the D part. Our organization relies on philanthropy who recognize this gap and see R&D as a massive lever to impact change, at least until more government support becomes available. Second, we're going to need early adopters. 
schools and districts that step out and say they want to do things differently. Schools and districts are political institutions. Doing something different entails risk. No one will get fired for continuing to use the same textbooks that were used last year. But if we don't find ways to incentivize new approaches, nothing will ever change. And then finally, we need new policies to make all of this actually happen. There's currently a combination of federal and state policies that effectively drive the adoption of grade-level textbooks and teaching grade-level material. Schools are mandated and incentivized to do a better job with standardized education. They are not motivated or incentivized to personalize it. So those are the three ingredients, R&D, incentives for early adoption, and better policies that can help shape what, what happens next in education reform so that we can have the kind of system where equity isn't just an aspiration, it's actually delivered by design. Well, that's promising. Thank you, Joel. Um, our next speaker is Keith Westman. Uh, Keith Westman is COO of Otis, a teaching data firm that provides teachers and principals real-time information about student performance. He'll be discussing using testing data to improve educational outcomes. Keith, go ahead. Thanks, Larry. Uh, I think we can all agree that data is the key to transformation, uh, whether that's organizational improvement, whether it's school uh, improvements, whether it's student improvement, whether it's personal improvement. I'll use the, uh, a couple personal analogies. Uh, the Peloton, uh, one year ago, I made the commitment to get on the Peloton bike and uh, see what happened. There's so much data and analytics that I'm getting as someone who uh, traditionally doesn't care about physical health and doesn't work out. But over time, uh, I use that data. Uh, it's presented to me in a very consumable way to start to change behaviors uh, so that I know that, man, I, uh, getting on that Peloton at 10 minutes, I'm drenched in sweat and I only burned 200 calories, maybe next time I go to eat that cookie, I'll think about, am I going to get back on this Peloton? Uh, or uh, another example, screen time. You can use the screen time feature on your iPhone, and that will tell you how long you've been staring at your phone and uh, on what apps have you been using. And ultimately, the point is you want that data to change your behavior. So if you notice that you're spending too much time on social media, you you, uh, you change that behavior so you don't do it next time. So what does all of this have to do with, uh, with today's topic? Uh, so COVID introduced a new era uh, on how K-12 is going to use technology. And, and our view uh, is that it's, uh, if we can get more data and share it with classroom teachers, with students, with parents, with school leaders, in a way that allows them to know what's going on so that they can change behavior, that's where the real transformation in K-12 education will happen. Uh, so let me just take a moment to share pre-COVID uh, what technology looked like in K-12 schools. Uh, you know, before uh, anyone expected that students were gonna be learning from home, Teachers really had autonomy to use different technology tools in their classrooms to, to, to teach kids. Uh, some teachers would use 10 to 12 different technology tools to uh, track behavior, to give tests, to communicate with families. And then you'd have other teachers who would use nothing. Um, but when COVID hit, this exposed a very serious problem. 
if you have a, uh, a parent at home who has three kids and that those kids' teachers all are using different technologies and maybe a couple teachers are using nothing, and none of those tools talk to one another or really have a way to aggregate everything that as a parent you're supposed to know about uh, your students, you're gonna, it led to exactly what we saw in the spring. A lot of frustration and confusion at home. Where do I go for Johnny's assignment, uh, assignments? Where do I go for Susie's assignments? What are they doing? How do we know if they're learning? A lot of chaos at home. Uh, a lot of turmoil in schools where schools are built to be face-to-face. That's how schools are designed. And overnight, uh, they were asked to actually flip their, their delivery and, uh, and all of their, their practices uh, on their end to deliver things remote. And so where, where we have seen a major shift in, in K-12 schools since the spring, so what have they worked on over the summer in anticipation for this fall, is really consolidating their technologies, getting away from teacher choice to, to use whatever tools you want and really finding some way to streamline all of those different uh, tools that they use day in, day out to teach their kids in order to provide efficiency for teachers, so you're doing things in one spot, but also streamlining communication for uh, for your families and for your students. Uh, but what that then allows is for data, now that we're using a comprehensive one system, uh, data to be exposed to school leaders in ways that it's never been able to be done before. So I'll use one quick example. Uh, if I look at just one of our schools who, uh, who, who started school a couple weeks ago, um, they have, you know, average size for the U.S., uh, 4,000 students, over the past 10 days of school have given out over 170,000 assessments. And you may be thinking to yourself, man, 170,000 tests to students. I thought we weren't teaching in the test. I thought that wasn't a good thing for us to do. The difference now is that these are formative assessments. Assessments that the teacher is giving every single day to say, I'm not with these kids right now. I can't pick up on body language. I can't make personal observations. I need to know how they're doing right now on what we taught, a formative assessment, so that I can look at that data, change my behavior, change the instruction or the lessons that I'm going to provide tomorrow so that we're really building on, uh, on learning experiences uh, every day, doing things differently. So uh, I'll be happy to talk about this more. I know I hit my six minutes, but where we see the opportunity here for the K-12 industry is, is in rethinking what assessment is, how it's used in K-12, and so that we're providing kids with more meaningful learning experiences the next day based on what they did the day before. Thanks, Keith. Okay, our next speaker is Moira McDermott. Moira is an associate teaching professor of mathematics at Syracuse University, and she's going to talk about teaching calculus for freshmen at Syracuse. Go ahead, Moira. Thanks, Larry. Uh, last spring, I was teaching Calculus One to a class of 64 first-year engineering students. When we moved to remote instruction in mid-March, I had already given two exams. I would give one more exam and a cumulative course-wide final exam online. 
I continued to hold synchronous sessions, and my class meetings were similar to what I'd been doing before the big pivot. An interactive lecture with an outline on slides, worked out examples, and clicker questions that I now delivered through polling in our web conferencing platform. I had many students in many time zones and with various access to internet and technology. I posted my notes and my class recordings to our course learning management system, or LMS. I surveyed my students checking in to see how they were doing, inquiring about their internet and time zone. We had several extra assignments to get used to the new quiz procedure, which required them to use a scanning app to scan their work and upload a PDF to the LMS. Many other faculty, predominantly outside of math, switched to more asynchronous instruction, thinking that this was more equitable in time of pandemic. Most of my students were grateful to have my class live and said that it was harder to stay motivated for synchronous, asynchronous classes. There are many challenges, especially related to being able to write math using a computer. I ordered a Wacom drawing tablet and a USB document camera, which was out of stock and took a couple weeks to come back in stock. I read about making a makeshift document camera with a smartphone and Lego or a baking rack. I think my classes went pretty well. and It even seemed like there were some students who were more engaged in the online setting than they had been in person. Attendance in my synchronous live sessions did drop off some over the course of the semester, and some of the students just disappeared. The next big challenge came with the first exam. I didn't have the time or mental energy to completely rewrite my exam, so I gave it. There was clear evidence that about a third of the class cheated on the exam, and circumstantial evidence that a lot more had as well. While some of the cheating involved collaboration between students, the vast majority involved using the website SymboLab. I didn't even bother checking CHEG. It was soul crushing to grade these exams. Normally I would have TAs help me grade, but it was too complicated to work out the logistics. I downloaded all the exams, uploaded them to an iPad, graded and made comments using a note-taking app, uploaded them back to the LMS. It was time consuming, and while the students appreciated getting written feedback, it took a toll on me emotionally. I had invested an enormous amount of time and energy into this class, and I was rewarded with widespread cheating. I also wondered if things would have been different if only I had written a better exam. The final exam was even worse. We began planning for the fall semester days after the end of the spring semester. SU announced fairly early on that we would resume residential instruction if possible. The summer was spent on working groups, planning, endless webinars about high-flex hybrid instruction. We were essentially told that we need to teach in person but also accommodate students who would need to be remote temporarily or full-time and also provide an asynchronous online course for students in distant time zones, basically three courses in one. There was much debate about whether faculty could opt to teach online only. Uh, then, just to add another wrinkle in the middle of the summer, the federal government rescinded some of the exceptions for international students related to visas and taking online-only courses. This was eventually reversed, but it caused a lot of unnecessary disruption this summer, especially thinking about TAs. Syracuse University has done a good job of implementing evidence-based practices. We have robust testing and tracing protocol, including wastewater testing in dorms. Uh, social distancing capacity in classrooms, filters and alterations to the HVAC and ventilation in buildings. The positive rate in central New York is very low. All the students coming from hot states had to quarantine for two weeks. 
we had a well-publicized incident where over 100 first-year students gathered, some without masks, certainly not maintaining six feet of distance on the quad during orientation, but no positive cases from that event. We've just finished two weeks of classes, and our active cases are low, and the number in quarantine is decreasing. So all in all, it's going pretty well. Uh, this semester, I have the same Calculus One course, this time with 188 first-year engineers. The main class is online because of the size, and I'm running it with live sessions much like I did in the spring. The recitations, which are taught by TAs, are in person, and that usually means alternate attendance since the whole section can't fit in the room at the same time. Courses taught in this format require masks, simultaneous live streaming, and recording for remote students. It's difficult to implement group work or any active learning. Many people, myself included, think it might be easier and better pedagogically to have everything online. But there was a huge push um, on the, by the administration to offer a residential experience. When thinking about this course, there were two main concerns that I had to deal with. One was the course structure and the other was assessment. When I'm thinking about course structure, uh, the biggest decisions had to do with the balance between asynchronous and synchronous instruction. Um, many people are pre-recording material and running their courses more like a flipped classroom. Um, and there's lots of questions about whether the faculty should be spending all this time, you know, recording videos when there, there are many, many high quality videos about calculus topics out there. So you could curate high quality videos, but then you run into the problem of students asking, why am I paying for this if all you're doing is putting together other people's videos? Um, the other issue that has to be addressed is assessment. So there are real challenges with testing in the online environment. And that's mostly related to collaboration, either with other students in the course or CHEG. Um, and also um, having kind of rote problems that can be easily plugged into a website like Wolfram Alpha, Simba Lab, or Mathway. Um, you know, being more creative about writing problems takes time and also is a scaling problem when it comes to grading. And for example, I would love to have my students upload videos of themselves explaining a solution, but it takes a lot of time and it's difficult to do with 188 students. So my first exam is in two weeks. Wish me luck. Thank you, Moira. So that ends our, our presentations, and we now go to Q&A, and I'll start with you, Moira. Um, so how much heating needs to be going on before all this? And is it just multiples more? Yeah, I mean, when you, when you give, I mean, Yes, there is cheating going on, but much, much less. When you give quizzes and exams in person, um, it just doesn't get done. You know, like some, sometimes they, they might try and, you know, have, have some, you know, something written down on a piece of paper or, you know, they, they go to the bathroom and they take their phone with them and they, you know, look something up. But, you know, with the right sort of, procedures and active proctoring, you can eliminate most of it, yeah. And so what other techniques are available? It, it, I assume that is it 
particular to math, or you think this is common across all the different subject matters. And, you know, like I've taken exams for, um, like, the NASD from the Stockbrokers Association. Um, we would go into a testing center and be filmed uh, while we were taking the exams. Has, have they thought about different methods of teach, uh, doing tests instead of doing it from home and being able to cheat? Yes, I mean there are there are a number of um, products, sort of proctoring software. You know, it sort of locks down your browser. Um, so some people use that, um, and then you know some people have done things where, you know, you have to be you have to do it live with a Zoom session and turn on your camera. But the thing is, you could there there are always ways to work around that, and. I don't think that that's the way to go because the, it, you know, I, I, just, I just don't think it's, um, I don't think it's effective and it sort of gives the wrong message as well. And cheating is going to happen. And so I think, um, I mean, the way I'm going to try and address it is, I will use certain restrictive settings in our um, LMS that gives the exam. So there's certain things you can do about, you know, random presentation of the questions and time limits and whether you can go back. You know, there's certain things you can do to make it really difficult to upload it some a test to check and have someone fill out the answers for you. Um, but the I think the thing that's really a bigger problem in math and probably in some of the other STEM disciplines is just that, you know, if you ask a question that you can plug it into a website and get the answer, you know, it's not a very good question. And I think that's where most of the cheating was. But the thing is to you know, to write really good questions, questions that is really authentic assessment and getting at student learning, it takes a lot of time and it's hard to scale it. So that's really the challenge is, you know, how to have, you know, really authentic assessment in large classes. This is Keith Watson. Can I comment on that, Larry? Yeah. Go ahead, Keith. Yeah, so, you know, I, I agree. I think that um, the, at, the, at the end when we're, we're talking about uh, anything Googleable is probably not a great question. Um, my son who's in high school has an app, you know, in math, you show your work, that he takes a picture of the problem, you not only see the answer, but it shows the work and you just write it out. So, there, so you know, the reality is what are the ways to assess learning that can't, that are Google proofery can't cheat. And 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 to your point, it's it's the performance tasks, it's questions where there may not be a right answer, but there's a thought process using rubrics in order to um, uh, understand how how those students are doing. And and yes, that's not scalable, um, but but it, and yes, it's hard. But that but but um, uh, it can be scalable. And just because it's hard doesn't mean we don't want to do it. Joe Rose. Hey, Larry, this is, um, Go ahead, Jay. This is, this is Jay, and I, I have a, a, a question along a different line uh, connecting Rita and Naomi's comments. So Rita was mentioning a law review article by uh, Harvard professor Elizabeth Bartholet, uh, which argued that homeschooling should be banned, and this was 
uh, released just as the pandemic was shutting down schools and forcing all kids to be educated at home, uh, and that caused quite a stir, and we had mentioned that. But one of Barthelot's main arguments is that we need to have children attend schools so that abuse can be detected and reported, and that's why she, that's part of the main reasons that she wants to ban homeschooling. Given the challenges that Naomi uh, was highlighting with detecting and reporting abuse during the pandemic. Naomi, are you more sympathetic now to Bartlett's arguments? Has that carried the day for you, or are there other reasons why you're, you'd be unpersuaded? So I think that uh, Professor Bartlett, it's, it's very odd that she made this argument because I, I find her sensible on a lot of other topics. I wrote a piece about this controversy for Education Next for anyone who's interested. Um, but I think that what's happened here is that you, you have these high-profile cases, if anyone's followed, like in Los Angeles, the Turpins, you know, who were hiding 13 children in their basement and telling Los Angeles that they were homeschooling them. Um, those cases are really pretty rare. Um, there's not a lot of forethought, frankly, that goes into a lot of the abuse and neglect that happens in this country. And like I said, we do know about a lot of the cases where kids are being abused and neglected, and we keep putting them back into those homes over and over again. Um, so I don't think that, you know, that's a reason to ban homeschooling. I do think, you know, if you have had a, a charge of abuse or neglect against you before, I think you have to, you should have to pass a, a higher barrier um, in order to get permission to homeschool from your local district. I have a question for uh... Joe Rose, Joe, you're talking about personalized learning, and effectively it sounds like non-proctored testing and quizzes. Uh, given the questions or concerns that Moira mentioned about cheating, how prevalent is cheating uh, at the K-12 level for this purpose? Well, first, it depends on how assessments are used. So um, when we give our um, five-question quiz at the end of each day. Um, that, the results that don't, don't go into the student's grade, um, it's a very low-stakes assessment that's just to helping to determine whether they're ready to move on to something new or whether they need a little bit more time with that skill. Um, for the tests that do matter, we usually give tests that are adaptive tests. The questions get easier or harder as the student progresses, and those are a little bit harder to cheat on because everyone is taking a different test. They're all taking the same test, and so it's not like the test can be uploaded into CHEG or something along those lines. Do I think it's possible that if a student is home and taking an adaptive test that maybe there's a, a sibling or someone nearby or they can Google a question? I'm sure that's happening to some degree, um, uh, but ultimately, you know, this is these are definitely middle school students, in some cases high school students, and the, the stakes are a little bit different, I think, than what you might see in, in higher education. Let me follow up with that. This is uh, this is Rick here, Joel, um, because you have a I mean you have a, a fabulous program. It sounds like uh, what I'm wondering is what do you see as the biggest impediment to to widespread adoption? Uh, and then the second question is what what levers do you think are most promising to pull on to spur greater adoption across the nation? Sure. Um, so there's really three key barriers. The first barrier is just school district inertia. Um, that, you know, they've been doing it the same way for years, and if you're now the head of math in Milwaukee, um, you know, this is just a very different way of thinking about math, and that's just not oftentimes how school districts think about the work that they do. Some do, but many don't. 
Um, the second barrier is actually policy. Um, so there are literally laws on the books in many states that say all kids should have a textbook that are aligned to grade level. Um, and at the end of the year, this is in every state, students take a test that is aligned to what the expectations are for that grade level. I, wrote, I also wrote a piece about this in Education Next, if anyone's interested in reading it. Um, and so these policies effectively, even if a school wants to truly meet each student's needs, the incentives are such that it's a big risk for them to do that given how they're, um, how they're rewarded and how they're incentivized. And then the third barrier is just simply the R&D. Um, we, we are stuck with the same model and with textbooks because there's not been a lot of energy or capital to design something better. I don't think anyone loves textbooks. It's just that we haven't designed the kinds of experiences that could be much richer. And actually, this pandemic has really helped to expose that, that suddenly we have 3.5 million teachers have to just figure it out on their own how to make learning happen remotely because we haven't had the design of what different experiences could be. So those are really both the barriers and the levers, R&D for, um, to design new models, the second is incentives for early adopters, and the third are new policies that can create the space for early adopters um, to take the risks associated with innovation. Right, but how about with... with, with... Go ahead, I was, I was just going to ask you. No, go, go ahead. All right, uh, sorry, yeah. this is Miura. Um, I, can I ask, I, I guess I'm a little confused um, about uh, this because like I think of basically I mean my guess is that most of us who have kids um, school-age kids have had our kids be assigned to use some sort of personalized math learning platform IXL math blaster you know the versions of Khan Academy that are now uh, become more adaptive right there, there's you know Pearson publishes things whatever that, that have the AI in them to become you know to offer easier questions harder questions to Say, oh, let's review this, whatever. Um, and I, so I'm, and so I'm kind of confused as to what is novel here, and particularly equitable, because I think one of the things that you know the pandemic has confirmed is the research that tends to show that the more successful kids tend to be more successful on personalized learning platforms, and the kids who are struggling tend to struggle more on personalized learning platforms. And so their promise as engines of equity, unfortunately, like as inspiring as that is, they turn out, unfortunately, to be more like engines of inequity, no matter how hard we try. Yeah, so I, you know, I've heard that, and I, I understand the argument. I think there's a couple things to keep in mind. One, in math, at least, in the What Works Clearinghouse, which is the sort of federal repository for all K-12 research, there are over 130 studies that are focused on math. And the total number of studies that show a positive impact in a program that a school can actually adopt, a middle school can adopt, is zero. Um, many of the tools that are tested are often tested on state assessments that are, that are analyses relative to grade level expectations. So yes, if you've got students who walk into seventh grade on a third or a fourth grade level and they work with adaptive software, those results may not show up on the seventh grade test because of the gap that we're all starting out with. 
the way what is equitable here is in a, in a traditional model, that student sits in a seventh grade classroom, and somehow we expect the teacher to go and fill all the gaps from fourth grade and fifth grade and sixth grade and cover all the seventh grade material, that somehow they're going to make that all work. That just never happens. There is so little evidence to no evidence that that is even viable when students are multiple years behind. So what we're trying to do is for students who are multiple years behind, actually lay out for them a tailored path. Specifically, what are the very specific skills that they need in order to catch back up to seventh grade or to eighth grade or to or algebra, depending on where they're starting from, and to ultimately give schools the ability in a very targeted way to enable students to progress on that path. So how is this different from, say, IXL or Summit Learning or School of One or something like that? I think that, sorry, this is me, right? That's, that's sure. Well, so um, this is school. I was going to start at School of One. So this is basically just the the next generation of School of One. Uh, it's called Teach to One. Um, and so the way it works is if you imagine you're a seventh grader and it's time for math class, instead of walking into room 105, you walk into what's typically a big open space with lots of different stations. In some stations, kids work with teachers. In some stations, kids work with software. And in some stations, kids work with one another. And when you walk in for math, you look up and you see a big TV monitor. And you see your name and you see which station you're supposed to go to. So you might spend the first 30 minutes working with the teacher in linear equations, a station number two, and 15 other kids. Then you might spend the next 30 minutes working in a peer-to-peer -peer activity in linear equations with two or three of your classmates. And then you take the last 10 minutes to take your online quiz and then you're off to science class, we then take the data and create a new schedule for you for tomorrow based on how you did today. So we're operationalizing the ability to differentiate learning for teachers. So Joel, this, this is Rick Banks again. That, this sounds like the, the model used by Rocket Ship Education. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. This is a charter school network. I am. And okay, so how, what, I'm not understanding, why are charter schools not your, your area of opportunity? Um, you know, you have lots of, of charter schools throughout the nation. They're growing. They have lots of different approaches. Uh, they're not hemmed in by quite the same uh, restrictions as other uh, public schools. They don't have the inertia problem because many of them are new, and lots of students and parents uh, are drawn to them precisely because they can innovate. So is that a likely uh, area of expansion for you? Or am I missing something? We love charter schools, and we work with a lot of charter schools all across the country. So, um, so absolutely, we're big fans of, of charter schools, and especially well-run charter schools. I think the challenge that charter school leaders have shared with us is that the way charters work is if they don't show results on the grade-level tests, they can actually lose their charter. That's kind of the that's the terms of the deal here. So mm -hmm. we go in and we say, we actually want to go back and meet kids where they are. They say, well, that sounds well and good, but I've got to make sure you sort of fire hose the seventh grade material because my scores have to go from 15% to 25% or I'm going to lose my charter. So in some ways, while they do have a lot more flexibility, the accountabilities actually limit the kinds of innovations that they can actually try. Right. But, isn't, but rocket ship is pretty much on your model, though. Is that not right? Um, I haven't checked in with Rocketship in a long time, so I'm, I'm a big fan of Preston's. I know he's doing some great work there. Um, I know that what the work that we do to sort of take daily assessment data and figure out what kids should do tomorrow based on what they learn today is something I don't think anyone else has figured out how to, how to pull off. Okay. This, this is so Keith Wesson. You know, one of the, one of the things I think that, uh, that I think this, un, this uh, showcases uh, 
this is really be- about best practices. Uh, and you need to know how a kid is doing today so that you can tailor what needs to happen tomorrow. And so whether it's math or science or whatever it is, it's really all about uh, using that formative assessment data um, to, to help kids out. Now, the problem in K-12 is that data is a four-letter word. When data is used, it's uh, very commonly a punitive measure against teachers. Your kid didn't score this, and so this means you're on, you're, you, you know, as a teacher, you have to do X, Y, Z. Um, if a kid doesn't perform well on a, on a, a test, they're going to have to get more of something that they didn't perform well on. So the conversation, um, it's really about changing how data is viewed that it's not this punitive measure in schools um, and that it's seen as, uh, as literally just a, a way to, again, change behavior. Uh, what are you, now that you know this, what are you going to do for your students differently? Whether that's a computer program telling the, telling the kid what they need to do or a, a, a loving teacher, uh, at the end of the day, it needs to be data, it needs to be informing that instruction. Um, let, let's go back to Naomi for a minute. I'm sorry, did you did someone say something? Uh, this is Mira. I had a question for Jay, but I'm happy to... Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. Um, so I was really uh, curious, Jay. Um, I think you're absolutely right that, um, uh, you know, just statistically, most of us know uh, current or former public school teachers. I was one. Um, and more so than we uh, necessarily know uh, current public school parents. I have wrestled, however, with this, uh, the, the issue of what, this question of what parents want. You know, when you look at the surveys that we've seen over the summer and even over the last few weeks, and we've seen that the parents that we imagine most need and would benefit and where their kids most need and would benefit from open schools, uh, namely low-income families uh, and families of color and um, families whose parents are essential workers, are uh, we see pretty systematically those who are uh, least comfortable with schools reopening and most cautious about sending their kids back even if the schools do reopen. I think understandably because they have the least trusting relationships with the public schools and because insofar as their communities have been hardest hit by COVID um, and because they don't trust their public schools to um, be safe because they won't have enough PPE, they don't have adequate ventilation, the teachers haven't had sufficient training and so forth, it means they're kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't, right? So they have greater risk if they send their kids back and they have greater uh, risk if they keep their kids at home. And I'm just curious how you think about that. Uh, well, I, I entirely agree. Um, but I think, look, there, there's a great diversity of preferences out there among families about what they need and want from schools, and there's probably a great diversity of ways that that can best be delivered. One of the difficulties that we're having that I think Rita pointed out well is we're having difficulty allowing parents and local schools the flexibility to offer a variety of options for people uh, that might best fit their particular situations. Um, but your, your, you know, your point also, though, makes me wonder a little bit about what you thought about Rick's opening remarks, because Rick was saying that schooling basically is an engine for, uh, for inequality because it benefits the advantaged more than the disadvantaged in general. Um, 
And you, I think, correctly point out that technology-based education doesn't seem to help that. It may exacerbate it. Um, so what do you think could help it? Well, how would you address Rick's concerns? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's funny, on our, uh, on our comprehensive exams for our second year PhD students in education at Harvard, we often ask some version of the question, uh, are schools engines of opportunity and equality, uh, or are they um, systems that actually just entrench the inequality uh, and also injustice that, um, you know, exists and society, because I think you know they're really good arguments on both sides. But I, um, I, I agree with Rick. That, I mean, I think his assessment is right that we do have all of these ways in which we seem to entrench inequality as opposed to promote equality. I mean, I think, I mean, frankly, my uh, approach would be to have a really massive program to try to promote school integration, because I think that that um, you know class-based and race-based in integration. Um, just because I think that that is the one thing that we've seen over the last uh, century that uh, more reliably than any other move uh, gets more equitable resources and peers and outcomes than anything else is um, changing who goes to school together. But that obviously is not an answer to the question of, you know, how should we think about equitable education during a pandemic? I mean, frankly, I think everything that we're seeing is just going to be the continued entrenchment and exacerbation of social inequity and injustice uh, that we already see, which is not a very optimistic perspective. Yeah, yeah I, I just had a friend uh, text me that, you know, this is a very depressing call and he's waiting for the minute of optimism at the end. Uh, which we will eventually get to, um, but but do you have any any? I mean, can you give us a, some optimism before the last minute of of what you think might be helpful? I mean, different people here yeah, are laying out right. different plans, right? Joel is saying let's use technology to promote uh, greater equality during the pandemic. Rita saying let's facilitate greater flexibility and and options. What, what do you see as, as a, a possible path during the, the pandemic? All right, so, so here are a couple possible paths. Um, I think one is celebrate the fact that um, school districts around the country uh, shifted to feeding kids the minute that they were shut down and recognized that that was their primary obligation before they did anything else. Uh, admit now that as a country we are using schools as a mechanism through which we're feeding over 50% of children up through age 17 and say, you know, schools shouldn't be in that business, but we should be in the business of making sure that kids' nutritional needs are met. And so take that really seriously and take seriously also the, all the other ways in which we are revealing that we're meeting kids' social welfare needs through schools, you know, that's medical care, dental care, therapeutic services, social services, assessments for, um, you know, abuse or neglect, and say, you know, these are really, really essential services. They're not what schools were designed for. They're not what we assess schools on. So let's make a commitment to continuing these services that actually uh, create more robust uh, institutions uh, and systems and policies so that they can happen without those being the things that distract schools from the job of teaching and learning. And then I think the other thing is I, I agree with Rita that enabling um, 
flexibility uh, and really local decision making with really good guidelines from science um, and also an addition of resources so they can meet those guidelines. Uh, would be fantastic. You know, I was talking to a school principal here in Boston a couple of weeks ago who said, I don't know what to do. I have, a, it's, it's a mostly low-income um, school that serves mostly kids of color, uh, but has a small, basically white and actually African-American middle-class parent group. And they started contacting her saying, we want to set up learning pods because we don't trust the Boston Public Schools to reopen, but we want to make them more equitable. So can you help us get in some of the lower income kids who live in neighborhoods that aren't ours and we don't really know how to connect with them? And she said, you know, I don't know, am I supposed to be doing that? Am I supposed to be planning for reopening? Or should we try to actually set up childcare ourselves in, it's an elementary school. And she said, but how can we set up childcare and not offer education? It was the exact problem that Rita was talking about. And I really felt for her because she desperately wanted to do the right thing and so did all of the parents. And they were feeling really stymied. And if they could have come together and planned together, I think they would have come up with some really interesting creative solutions. So I do think that empowering really local decision making along with providing the resources uh, could lead to a real flowering of educational innovation. Rita, um, what do you make of Mira's comments, particularly uh, the role of schools? It seems like Mira was emphasizing, I'll call it the non-educational aspects of the, of the school environment. Where should learning be on that process and how should um, we focus on maximizing learning in general? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's, a, there's, you know, we did see that, that some of the first things that happened in March were this, you know, what are we going to do about child, if the school's closed, what are we going to do about child care and how are kids going to eat, right? And I think that people really did feel like, well, this kind of laid bare what people are really in public education for, right? That they're not in it, but learning's not the main thing, or education is not the main thing. They're providing certain economic services for children that maybe should be provided by um, other entities. And... I mean, I think it is, it's good that they, that they did find ways uh, to provide some of those services, certainly not childcare, but that was, their hands were tied on that front. But I do think that going forward, I mean, part of the thing that will make it difficult for schools to be flexible um, and to accommodate situations like this, I mean, not that we should expect a pandemic to be recurring every year, but different things do happen, is being weighed down by having to perform all of these non-educational functions, right? The more jobs an institution takes on, the more sort of unwieldy it becomes. And so I think, I mean, I, I would disagree with Mary, and I would say we should reconsider that we have saddled uh, the public schools with all of these, these tasks uh, that, that maybe would be better done by other institutions in society, um, because it may actually make the schools less effective at doing the thing that we, I think, think we want them to do, which is education. Um, and, you know, the, the data so far hasn't been extensive just because we're still in the situation, but, you know, there was a report, I think, a couple of weeks ago put out by the Fordham Institute about uh, the, you know, I think they did eight or nine big charter networks and how they had responded to the pandemic. And their findings, though they're sort of preliminary because it's still ongoing, were that the charter networks, which have many sort of fewer functions, are smaller, are a little bit more nimble, um, we're better at immediately pivoting to online instruction, at, at having more contact with families, more regular contact, um, being more in touch with the students. 
So I think there are real advantages to having slightly more nimble educational institutions, including public ones. I mean, I don't think that we should scrap the public schools or anything like that. I think we should think about how we can make the public schools uh, serve students better. Um, and so, and I do think, I mean, people are going to come back to the public schools. I don't think that this is like a long-term destination, although I do think that a lot of people who have experienced homeschooling uh, this year may have discovered that they like it. And there are definitely certain kinds of kids for whom school is not beneficial, but they're not the majority. Uh, so, I mean, I think that one of the things that this may end up doing is giving schools a kind of wake-up call and, you know, that they need to become more nimble and be more flexible and sort of more able to accommodate students' needs. So I'm not actually that pessimistic. I just think that this particular uh, fall and possibly spring uh, have been pretty disastrous. But I do think that the, just the necessity of schooling in America um, and the need especially for public institutions of education are going to, you know, help people find ways to make them work again. Can I just add, uh, respond to that? This is Naomi. Um, I, I want to just uh, say, I mean, I, I'm skeptical that there are other institutions that are going to be able to provide these services to kids in the same way that schools do or that we would necessarily want them to. I mean, one kind of disappointing part of all this that you've seen is for, for parents and families that are receiving, for instance, cash assistance from either, you know, state or federal programs, um, uh, there's actually surprisingly little contact between, you know, case workers that are helping with those programs and the families. Um, the move over to, you know, debit cards for everything, you know, may have made things more efficient, but it's also provided us with less, fewer, fewer points of contact with those families. And so, you know, I would, I actually think that, you know, schools could be, you know, uh, it, as much as you don't want to burden them too much, I think they're actually, because they are providing that regular contact with kids, you know, that they were actually having parents come to the school to pick up meals and things like that, which may seem to some people like an inconvenience, um, is actually a great way, you know, not just in this sort of nefarious sense, I think about it, you know, to keep eyes on kids, but also to make sure that we're still having contact with the adults and those families so that if they do need help, you know, when we could see that they need help or they have somebody to in person ask for help, um, as opposed to just sort of moving these over to some other institution that might be able to address those physical needs, but won't address the kind of person-to-person -person contact that they should be having. You know, this is Keith. This is I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Keith. You know, I was just going to say, I, I, I would, I believe that that uh, education is is definitely the number one priority of schools. Um, having myself worked in public schools for many years, uh, the reality is those services were given to schools not because they want to distribute food or they want to become dentist office. It's because when you have a student in your class who's hungry, anything that's coming out of my mouth as a teacher is not going to register. Um, they need to have those basic needs taken care of. And I think, so, so I don't think it's that there's another entity that can provide those services. Education is the number one thing for schools in order for that to happen for all kids in an equitable way. Then those services need to be provided at the school in order for you got to take care of their basic needs before before you can do the learning and all all that COVID exposed to us i think is show is, is is just exposed is wow schools do so much more than just teach the pythagorean theorem so um, I, keith this this is jay um 
I mean, th- there is another institution that does feed and clothe children and take them to the dentist and so on. They're called families, right? So don't you think, I mean, obviously families struggle and need help. Um, but, but do you have any concern that if schools begin to assume primary responsibility for more or more of these functions, uh, that it might alter the relationship between parents and children and between parents and schools? No, but, but um, you know, I, my kids didn't learn to talk from, from uh, school, but I still send them there. Families don't just provide the basic needs. They also provide learning experiences for the kids. So I guess um, I'm, not, I'm saying in an equitable way. Um, uh, where my kids go to school, uh, I, I, the, the population of students that need those services is not as high as in other areas. So what I'm saying is in order for schools to do their job of educating kids, there are some responsibilities that they need to take on. Um, I would never, I mean, some days, you know, now that I'm doing remote learning as a parent, I would love if the school was the primary caregiver of my own children. Um, but I'm definitely not saying that. I'm saying that they do, they do need to provide some of those responsibilities those resources for kids just so that the kids can actually learn. I want to change subjects to whether or not we think that given the COVID spread risk, whether or not we should open K to 12 schools. Um, Mira, why don't I start with you? Do you think public schools should be open? I think there's no way to answer that question generally. You know, uh, I think it was Joel maybe mentioned, you know, there are about 14 or 15,000 school districts. There's about 130,000 uh, or so um, schools, right? And um, each of them has its own peculiar mix, right? One may be serving uh, kids with severe physical disabilities where the teachers are involved in, uh, you know, diapering and feeding uh, kids and so forth. Uh, and some of those may be full inclusion classrooms and some of them may not. Some may be serving kids uh, who go home to multi-generational families and others may be serving kids who mostly live in nuclear families. You know, like the, the array of schools and the questions about safety is so broad, I don't think we can have any policy answer that says across the United States this is what we should be doing. I do think that some schools should be back in uh, business and I do think that we should make it possible for many, many, many more of the schools to reopen. Uh, but I also um, you know, think that this has to be done, again, at a very determined at a local level, uh, but frankly, with a lot of federal support. Rita, your thoughts? Um, yeah, well, I, I agree with Mira that it's a great thing that we have federalism um, and that there really shouldn't be a central directive that would determine all of these districts' uh, response to the, the pandemic. But I do think that. Um, most places, at least where where the virus is not is not spreading at very high rates, uh, or is not really taxing the the health system, um, or or you know putting it over capacity, should have some sort of in-person options. Um, I mean, again, to to return to the point that Mira makes about you know families where you know you have multi-generational families, or you have family members at home who are higher risk. Um, I think that there should be an option not to attend, and that that would be a reasonable thing. 
Um, but that there are many people who want to attend and who would really benefit from attending and from having some kind of in-person uh, teaching, especially younger students um, and students who are high needs um, or you know, have other sorts of needs that are advanced by being in-person. And so I would, I would lean towards having in-person options in most places where that would be feasible. Um, but I would also defend federalism and the idea that you know localities should be allowed to make their own decisions. But I think that those decisions should be based on a calculus that really privileges um, in-person instruction. Naomi, um, do I? I mean, I agree. I think this country is too big to to make those kind of decisions. Um, but I but I do think that a lot of the conversation, unfortunately especially earlier in the summer, was really being driven by, um, uh, by educators, by teachers' unions, and I don't think that parents were really consulted enough about what they wanted to do. I've seen these, the surveys, and it's definitely true that um, uh, lower-income folks were, were less um, excited about schools opening, but I was just amazed over the summer at, you know, how many people were receiving a survey at the beginning of August asking if they wanted schools to open. Um, so I think that, you know, frankly, they, they should open. These kids are the lowest risk uh, of any of the populations that are affected by the virus, and I, I just think that we can't get the rest of the country open until uh, schools go back, um, and we obviously need to make special provisions for kids who have, um, you know, circumstances at home if they're living in multi-generational homes, but, but frankly, I would, you know, put my thumb on the side of the scale of reopening rather than staying closed. What about you, Jay? Uh, so I, I, I think I uh, agree uh, with Naomi and Rita um, and Mayor. I think everyone, everyone is actually saying something very similar. Um, I, I think the, the, one of the difficulties, though, that we're having is uh, a rigidity in compensation and payment. So um, some families want to send their kids back and some don't. And some teachers are willing to go back and some not. And schools are legitimately afraid that they won't be able to have the numbers match, that the number of teachers who want to come back and work face-to-face uh, are, won't be the same as the number of kids who need teachers when they come back face-to-face. -face. And so the, the market won't clear. Um, normally, price changes so that that market would clear, but the price can't change here, or at least no one wants to do that. So, so they won't pay teachers extra to come back for face-to-face, -face, and they can't charge parents more to come back for face-to-face, -face, except that, as Rita points out, they are as long as they're not providing instruction, as long as it's only custodial care, schools are in fact charging parents to come back to send their kids back. Um, and so, you know, these solutions are being found outside of the traditional public schooling system more easily because price can vary outside of the traditional system and the market is clearing more easily there. Moira, how do you think about this at the college level? Um, well, so I actually was thinking about just kind of the contrast between my employer and then also thinking about the school that my son goes to. Um, so 
I mean, this has been an issue. I think lots of universities have handled it differently. Um, when they were first talking about it, um, they were going to say, you know, if you had, you know, something that made you more susceptible, kind of like you could apply for an exemption based on kind of like a um, a disability claim. You know, let's say you, you want to teach online only because you're over the age of 65 or you have some other disease, that sort of thing. And then they got a lot of pushback. And so eventually it came down to it's up to you, right? You can say for whatever reason that you don't feel safe going back in the classroom. Um, but there was a lot of, you know, conversation with deans and things like, you know, if, if your whole department is teaching online, then, you know, if we bring the students back and we have nobody to teach them, you know, we'll remember this when hiring comes around type thing. So, but it was a very weird situation because, um, you know, you have lots of older faculty uh, that don't want to teach in person. And then, um, so TAs, graduate students, were ended up being there sort of providing, you know, the vast majority of the in-person instruction and the sort of inequities there. Um, and I think there was a sense, you know, the, the university was like, okay, we want to provide a residential experience. And then they had to backtrack on, you know, how they were communicating with faculty about whose choice it was. And then, you know, the students were like, oh, you know, all my classes are online except for one of them. Why am I here? And so there was a real, you know, it, I think at some places more than other, there are questions about whether universities are being misleading to the students because, you know, there are financial issues, right? They want them back because they want them paying for room and board. Um, but, you know, when I think about the, the public school system, the um, I am at least not as privy to conversations about whether teachers have the same kind of choice that faculty have had. Um, and so I worry about that. Um, you know, I think the families have choice, um, and I think they're trying to match. Um, you know, that would be a teacher's choice. But I, I, I feel like the, the schools are having less of a choice. Um, and I know it, there are some universities where it was, was much more restrictive. Um, and I think it caused, you know, a lot of problems with faculty saying, you know, I don't feel safe and I shouldn't be forced to teach in the classroom if I don't want to. Joe, I, wa I want to bring uh, you into the conversation. Yeah. You know, you... You do this uh, schooling in a different sort of way. There's more personalized work. You have time with your peers. You have time uh, working by yourself. And then there's also time with teachers. Are you able to leverage faculty at a much greater rate? And how can we maybe apply this self-learning and peer work in the context of maybe a, a more virtual environment for the teachers, but the kids being there maybe without having oversight as much? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to remember that when the pandemic hit in the spring and many cities, including where I live in New York City, shut down, um, we were still able to um, 
order paper towels online. We're still able to watch movies. We're still able to conduct our banking. And that's because a number of businesses and sectors had invested in R&D over the last 20 years. They changed the delivery model of their core business. Um, and in doing so, while the, sure this wasn't necessarily the intent, in doing so, they were far more prepared to get us all through the pandemic than we otherwise would be. Were it not for Zoom, we'd be doing schools on the telephone as opposed to video conference. And that Zoom had nothing to do with the K-12 sector. It was a business communications tool. So what I think this, at least for me, reinforces is the idea that we need to invest in innovation for a host of reasons, Not one of which is just how inadequate the current system is, and then two is because there are going to be other things that could happen in the future. The work that we do around collaborative learning, independent learning, exit slips, we were able to readily transition to operating teach-to-one in a remote context for all the schools that we worked in over the course of the spring. Some did some of the modalities. Some did all of the modalities. They did live instruction through Zoom. They did the collaborative learning through the breakout rooms. They took the independent learning, came through our portal. They took their exit slips. But that was all because we have been able to spend the last several years designing that on behalf and for teachers. So they didn't have the weight of both designing those experiences and then actually implementing them. I, I think that is what, in my mind, is the key message here is, is when we have 3.5 million teachers who shut their door and do their thing, um, it's extremely hard to get the kinds of design and individualization and breakthrough innovation that I think could power the next wave of education reform. Okay. Um, maybe it's time to talk, start talking about optimism. Um, Jay, do you want to start? Um, what do you take as being optimistic right now in the context of K-12 education? Well, uh, <laughs> um, it's not easy uh, here because uh, we have had, had some, some uh, gloomy reports from, from almost everyone. Um, I mean, I guess the optimism I would take um, is from the comments that I had on your show previously, which is parents are pretty adaptive. And they, have, they are finding solutions, not always ideal, but they are finding solutions for what they need to do to raise their children. And uh, they're discovering that those solutions sometimes are serving them better than a traditional schooling system that, uh, as I think both Rick and Mayor correctly point out, have not always had their best needs or their best interests at heart. Um, uh, but it's hard for them. They, they struggle and, and lack uh, certain resources and capacities to pull that off well. But they're, they, they're resourceful. And I, I take some optimism from that. I mean, I, I should also just quickly mention that um, I also volunteer as a CASA, court-appointed special advocate in the foster care system. Um, and so I've, I've been seeing firsthand a lot of what Naomi has been talking about. Um, and... Uh, yes, this, the foster care system struggles under normal times, and it's struggling more now. And frankly, I think that's true in general. I mean, uh, as, as actually the psychologist you, you had on the show last weekend was talking about, is that, that what the pandemic does is it, it reveals people who are already kind of weak swimmers and having a hard time. So a lot of organizations that were struggling, like schools, 
universities, foster care systems. Um, it's not that that they weren't struggling before. It's that their struggling is revealed uh, more clearly. Um, but maybe the revelation of those problems will sharpen attention to solutions and improve things going forward. And again, I, I ultimately do believe in the resourcefulness of parents uh, to, to find solutions for their own families. So that would be the things that give me optimism. Thanks, Jay. Mira, what about you? What are you optimistic about? So I'll, I'll offer a few things that are different from the uh, things I said before. One is, um, as Jay just said, the illumination of, um, say, inequities that currently exist, uh, I think actually is a moment for optimism because those kinds of inequities ha are no surprise to those who pay attention to uh, the education system and are who are you know professionals in some ways in the system, um, but they certainly were not as visible I think to others and um, there wasn't the same kind of public commitment to addressing them. Uh, I was really struck that a colleague did a study of all 50 states' um, initial uh, plans that they set out and all 50 of the states made equity a driving concern. Uh, which I found really surprising because you know there are lots of other values that they could have uh, elevated rather than equity. Um, but they all elevated equity. Now interpreting it totally differently, right? The way one uh, might expect, but uh, still I think that this illumination and this attention, uh, if we can capitalize on it, frankly, is really to the good. One of the uh, so two ways I think we might capitalize it on it. One is I would hope that within the next couple of years, we'll actually um, agree that the, um, the World Wide Web, the Internet, is a public utility and we'll start providing it as such. Um, I think uh, one of the things that's really disturbed me is the fact that although, uh, say, Wi-Fi and hotspots were being provided to kids and families free of charge often in the first few months, that initiative seems to have stopped for this year, but it's as crucial as ever and uh, the need to give coverage in rural areas and so forth is as crucial as ever and I think if we can turn it into a public utility and just agree that all kids are misserved if they don't have access these days to the internet, that would be a really good thing. And then the other thing is, you know, we were talking about all the other services that schools do in order to enable learning, such as feeding kids, giving them medical care. And I, in, in thinking about like the, the language around defunding the police, uh, one of the things that uh, the, those who advocate defunding the police have been saying is, is we think that it's different institutions who should be doing these services, right? It's not the police who should be responding to mental health crises. It's not the police who should be responding to social service crises. It should be social workers and mental health workers and so forth. And I think similarly, as we think about all of the, you know, Jay started us off talking about the $1.3 trillion that we spend each year um, on education, right? Um, and the three quarters of a trillion dollars that we spend just on K-12 education. Some of that is for teaching and learning, and a lot of it is for other things. And I certainly do not want to go on the record saying we should defund education. But I do think that we could be optimistic about um, taking seriously who should be doing what and who can do it well. 
Uh, and although my solution probably say to the feeding all kids is different from some of the others on the call and that I would say we should have living wage, uh, you know, uh, living levels of minimum wage because that will enable families to feed uh, their children better uh, and that we should have more generous social services, et cetera. I think in general, um, the question of really should we be channeling all social welfare services for families through schools uh, is, I'm going to be optimistic and say is one that we may take up and ideally answer uh, and say no, not by withdrawing those social welfare services, but by figuring out a more equitable and robust system to provide them in the future. Thank you, Mira. Uh, Rito, what are you optimistic about? Um, well, I guess I, I would echo to some degree what, what Jay said, but I think that, um, you know, when Bartola wrote that, that essay uh, about banning homeschooling, it, you know, the reasons she gave were sort of, you know, they were things that were sensible in some ways and would be very persuasive, I think, to many people uh, who read it. And it just happened that it came out at a time when the, the reality of, of schooling just completely contradicts even the possibility of what she proposes. So my, my optimism is that these alternative things, which I think are always good for the education system, I think that, that pluralism has always been good for American education, um, has gotten a real boost from this situation. And in some ways, it's, it's because of a cost or a price that other people have had to pay, which is unfortunate. Um, but that, you know, homeschooling, you know, people would mock homeschooling, you know, even recently. Uh, now we've all tried it a little bit, right? So we have at least some experience of what it's like, and it's not as crazy or, or far-fetched as it would have seemed to many people before. Um, and, you know, other sorts of innovative educational ideas, or at least, you know, ideas that are not mainstream, like, you know, virtual charter schools and all kinds of virtual schooling, um, have sort of entered into the discussion. People now have some experience with them. They're less foreign and less, you know, frightening uh, or bizarre. And so I, I think that one of the good things that have come out of this um, has been that it has given a real boost to educational pluralism and to, you know, given us some, some personal sense of the necessity of having, you know, not just a, public, a centralized public education system, but other kinds of options that are good for different kinds of people at different times. Thank you. Uh, Naomi, what are you optimistic about? So the only thing that usually gives me optimism in the foster care system continues to give me optimism in this crisis, uh, which are the kind of volunteers, Jay, you mentioned CASA, but also all the um, volunteers and foster families, a lot of the faith-based um, agencies. I think there's been a major shift um, in a lot of churches regarding foster care and adoption out of foster care. Uh, they're recruiting much more intelligently. They're getting... Um, solid, stable, middle-class families to get into the world of foster care, which I think uh, we are sorely lacking. And you even saw, amazingly, during the pandemic, uh, there, were an, there was an increase in some of these organizations in their ability to recruit foster parents. They switched a lot of their training to online training, which, frankly, a lot of states should have done already um, because they make it so difficult and logistically impossible for parents to get these get to these um, places if they have jobs. Um, so I, you saw an increase uh, in some states in uh, people volunteering to do uh, foster care and, and just to sort of surround the people in their community who are already doing foster care with the kind of uh, logistical, financial, and other kinds of even spiritual help that they needed in this journey. And uh, I just I find that very inspiring. Thank you. Joel, what do you find optimistic about? 
Well, when I first started this work uh, almost 10 years ago, I remember saying to my co-founder, I think this is 25 years of work to build this and try to get the systems to move in this direction. Um, we now think it's about 21 or 22. Uh, I think this is actually a moment that really is catalytic, and I am incredibly optimistic, and there's really three key reasons. Number one, technology is no longer a four-letter word when it comes to education. I think people are, teachers are using technology more than they ever had, and I can't tell you the number of teachers I've spoken to who said, you know, I don't think that this is anything nearly as good as real school, but I am definitely going to bring some of these tools and some of these new capabilities into my classroom when we do go back. So that's number one. The second is the policy landscape has changed quite a bit. Um, the, the, uh, the, there are now some states that are signaling to school districts and schools that they're going to have to still take the end-of-year state test. And you have superintendents going, are you kidding me? Uh, do you know how much learning loss has happened? What do we hope to accomplish by having an assessment and accountability system based on grade-level expectations given where we are? And that's going to create the space for a whole lot of new thinking. And then I think the third is there's a lot more attention now around addressing students' social and emotional development. And it's very hard on one hand to say we really want to nurture students and, and develop them socially and emotionally, and on the other hand say, oh, but by the way, we're going to basically you know, have them all learn the same thing at the same time regardless of where they're starting from. Uh, the student who walks in two years behind feels like a failure on day one, and their hole gets deeper and deeper and deeper. So we are, I think, at the precipice of something very different when, we come to, when it comes to education, thinking very differently about the delivery model, and I think that is you know, exactly what I think this moment is going to, to lead us to. Thank you, Joel. Keith, what are you optimistic about? You know, I think the uh, thing to be optimistic about is that remote learning is not great. Uh, could you imagine if schools would have closed down and students, K-12 students, were learning from home and people loved it? Like, how, how scary would that be? Where, where, where they were learning more, they were happier, and they were feeling more connected. Uh, so I think the good news is that, this, is that we now know that schools do play a very critical role uh, in all of society. Uh, secondly, I do believe that the, the, you know, the, the almost mandate or the funding for schools to have ac uh, all students to have access to Internet and devices, regardless of their zip code, uh, is, is uh, something we should be very optimistic about. You, when we think about equity for students to not have uh, the same learning experiences that the Internet offers or d devices offer due to their zip code uh, is obviously uh, a travesty. And so it seems like this pandemic has resolved that in, uh, in many instances, of course, not all. And then finally, you know, the, the, the closer examination by K-12 schools to use technologies that, uh, uh, that put a priority on providing schools with useful data to improve teaching and learning, and getting rid of tools that are, are noise. And I think that uh, just creates better efficiencies. It, cre it puts a, a, an emphasis on best practices, and that all can happen through data. So I think there's, there are three amongst the others that, others, uh, that other folks have shared. Those are the three um, uh, reasons to be optimistic uh, in my view. How about you, Moira? 
and I think there's a lot of inertia in higher education, um, especially in STEM education. You know, there's too much reliance on high-stakes testing and authentic assessment and not enough active learning. And I'm optimistic that um, this sort of shock to the system will maybe help some people get over that inertia and be able to make significant changes. And I also think that some of the things that we've, you know, learned how to use and do, you know, whether it's technology or some parts of instructional design, um, will actually carry over uh, even when we return to the classroom as we knew it before. Thanks, Mara. Rick Banks, I'm calling on you. Um, what are you optimistic about? This, this, is a, this is a time and a topic where it is difficult to find optimism indeed. Uh, yeah. The uh, starting point here is that the, I want to go back to this uh, idea of uh, people's uh, – one upside of this crisis is that people are becoming more aware of the pervasiveness of inequalities in our society, uh, which COVID has exposed. Uh, and that so people have information uh, that they didn't have before. Uh, they're kind of hit hard with the uh, impact of those inequalities on people's lives. And that can be a, a great prompt for change. Uh, I think back, though, to this uh, image that we've gone back to of strong swimmers and deep and, and weak swimmers, and, and I think that's really leading us astray, though. Um, I mean, the difference in society is not between strong swimmers and weak swimmers. It's that some people are in much deeper and choppier water and difficult to navigate water than other people are. And we need to recognize that we have people in different situations uh, that make it all but inevitable that if we don't act, uh, we're going to see a great exacerbation of inequalities along many different dimensions. Uh, but on the upside, uh, I think people have had a, a, a change of consciousness so that more and more people are beginning to see that we all have a stake in, in creating a society that works for everyone. Uh, and in particular, if we don't have an educational system that works better in the future than it has in the past. America's uh, position uh, in the world will be in peril. And that's everyone's job as a, as a citizen to try to make a positive contribution there. Uh, as my father used to say, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Uh, one positive uh, specific development that's on my mind today is uh, a student of mine who is uh, you know, doing remote learning, of course, as a Stanford law student, but has realized that they are in a position to actually mobilize students around the country. Uh, uh, university students and graduate students and to provide some social support to high school and middle school students who often uh, will need support that their families frankly cannot provide because although their parents love them deeply, their parents are strapped. Uh, so that's one effort to work outside of existing institutions for everyone to pitch in, for the people who have, who have more and know more to help those who have less and know less. Uh, and I think that sort of uh, individual initiative shows great promise for uh, lessening uh, some of the inequalities that would otherwise develop. Back to you, Larry. Thank you, Rick. Okay. Um, so that concludes today's session. I just wanted to plug, again, our next week, um, what happens next. We're going to have Paul Peterson from Harvard School of Education. We're going to discuss uh, cancel culture and speech on campus with Alan Coors, a retired professor of intellectual history at Penn, as well as uh, Marianne Frank, who is a uh, law school professor at the University of Miami. 
Patrick Allett will return uh, to discuss his teaching with Zoom, um, and my fraternity brother, Ted Howell, will be back to discuss his, uh, his lab testing for the COVID virus, uh, amongst others. Um, that's it. Um, well, one last thought. Um, start reading your Catherine Ann Porter classic, um, Pale Horse, Pale Rider, when you get a chance. That's it. You may disconnect. Uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>